Family and friends had brought news to Nehemiah from Judah and Jerusalem. Nehemiah, it's not good. It's not good at all. The remnant of the people at home in Jerusalem are in great distress. They are in calamity. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And upon hearing this, Nehemiah's heart broke. It was a disaster. The people were living in rubble in the city, and they were living in reproach among the people around them. And, and what could he do? He's only one person. He's 800 miles away from Jerusalem in Susa, in Persia. Days, maybe months of travel by foot, camel, or horseback. Maybe to put in a little geographical perspective, it would have been pretty much the same dangerous journey and route that the Magi would travel 450 years later to worship the Son of God. Now, even if King Artaxerxes gave him time off, what could man, what one man do with no resources when the devastation is so enormous, the need is so humongous, when he can't think of thing one that he could do? Nehemiah did the only thing he could do. And it was the same thing that Elijah had done. When Baal worship had taken over the entire landscape of Israel and all the other prophets of the living God had either been killed by Jezebel or were hiding out in caves, what's the last man standing supposed to do against 450 prophets of Baal and, and 400 prophets of the Asherah? The Apostle James writes in James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That means he was an ordinary person just like every one of us. He had no special in with God just because he was a prophet of God. His in with God was what every one of us as a child of God has with him. He was an ordinary guy. It says Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed earnestly. In the original language, it says he prayed in his prayer. He prayed in his prayer. It's an idiom that suggests dogged perseverance. The Lord Jesus said that we should pray and not give up, not to lose heart. And then Jesus told a story about a tenacious widow who kept pressing an unscrupulous judge to hear her case. And the judge flatly denied to give her a hearing at first, at second, at third. But she kept pressing the judge. She would not be put off until the judge finally gave in and gave, in and gave her the legal protection that she needed. On another occasion, Jesus pictured this prevailing prayer as a man pounding on the door of his friend's house at midnight to borrow three loaves of bread. Somebody who wanted to give his newly arrived guest a midnight snack or midnight meal had stopped by this guy's house, pounded on his door late at night, and after all, it was Middle Eastern hospitality. If somebody arrives at your house, you've got to, to do this, do whatever it takes to feed the guest after a long journey. And the rudely awakened householder tried to send his audacious friend away, go away. He would have to get out of bed, and in those days, there's basically one or two rooms in a house, and the parents would sleep at the back wall, and then there's all these mats on the floor where all these little kids are at. Get to the place where the bread is kept, the kitchen over by the fireplace, step all over these kids, get to the door, the baby starts crying. Try McDonald's, they're open late. Get a nice, they got a really nice drive-up window. You can go over there, great, great menu. 
But like the persistent widow, the friend refused to be dismissed. He kept knocking and knocking and knocking until he finally got what he wanted. Now, Jesus wasn't saying that our Father God bears any resemblance at all to the indisposed friend or the disinclined judge. See, Jesus was arguing from the lesser to the greater. If even a reluctant friend or an unscrupulous judge will sooner or later relent and give what someone keeps on asking and asking and asking, how much more will the loving Heavenly Father give to his own children when they ask? Jesus added, Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long after them? I tell you that he will bring justice about quickly. Now quickly, a relative term. You know the great American prayer. God give me patience and give it to me right now. Fix it now, Lord. Heal me now. Do it now. Make this problem go away now. God is rather, rare, rarely in a hurry, but neither does he delay. I finally found the words to a, to a song, a spiritual song that I've been quoting since I'd heard it in seminary more years ago than I want to admit right now. It's called, You Can't Hurry God. It says, you can't hurry God, you just have to wait. Trust and give him time, no matter what it takes. He's a God you can't hurry, you don't have to worry. He may not come when you want him to, but he's right on time. Right on time. Or as the way I heard it in seminary, God don't always come when you want him to, but he's always on time. God does what he decides to do when he decides to do it for your good. That's why he gets to be God. Meaning we don't. <laughs> because he knows. The early church fathers talked about this as holy leisure. And by holy leisure, they meant an unhurried pace of life that's tuned to God's rhythm, tuned to God's cadence. It's a matter of slowing yourselves down, staying in step with God, praying fervently, praying in our prayers, but waiting on the Lord, listening. God's answer will always come in time, in his perfect timing. When I was in college, I had a poster hanging on the wall of my dorm room that said, Remember, Jesus walked. He didn't run. And in fact, if you look at Scripture, the only time that Jesus told somebody to do something quickly was to Judas. Whatever you do, do quickly. Martin Luther, the great reformer, was known to pray at least two hours every day. Someone asked him, how can you spend so much time in prayer when you've got so much to do? And Luther answered, when I have too much to do, I spend four hours in prayer each day. God's answer will always come in time, in his perfect timing. Jesus said a prayer, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. As believers, we must keep beating a path to the Lord's door, asking knocking, seeking until he replies. Jesus added, for everyone who asks what? Receives. Everybody who seeks, finds. And he, to him who knocks, the door will be, be open. The Apostle Paul commands us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. First things first. By first of all, he said, of primary importance, 
Prayer is the main thing in the Christian life, in living the Christian life, the thing of primary importance. Prayer is the center, the core, the root, the spirit of all that we do. Prayer is the spirit of all that we do as individuals. It's the spirit of all that we do as Grace Baptist Church. You know, it's interesting to me that every time somebody does one of those religious surveys of the American public, 60 to 70% of Americans say they pray on a regular basis. No one has to tell us to pray. Why? Because prayer springs from necessity. When the need is greater than ourselves, when we are pushed beyond our limits, when we are at the end of the ropes, what? We pray. That's the way God made us. He made us so we can't get along without him. It's one of those does of scripture. We can't get along without God. Duh. <laughs> we must realize that we are always needy people. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It was James who wrote of Elijah, the man of prayer. Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed earnestly. And it's been said that James' knees were so ugly, so calloused, that he was called camel knees. Can you imagine calling the elder of the church at Jerusalem camel knees? Kids going, oh, look at that, camel knees, old camel knees. Why were James' knees so calloused? It was because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. James knew that apart from Jesus Christ, he could do nothing. James knew that like Elijah, like Nehemiah, we're always needy people. And all around us are people with deep needs that you and I cannot meet. We prayed about some of those this morning. Each one of us has needs. We are needy people. And each need, whether it's own or whether it's somebody else's, and it's incentive to pray. But does this mean that we're not called to do anything? Just, just pray about it? To give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus, to bear one another's burdens, fulfill the law of Christ, to be used of God in a very specific way, to meet a burden or ease a burden. If it's our own need or it's that of someone in our family, does it mean that we don't do anything at all? Not at all. Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 contains several aspects of prayer. He shows us that prayer is adoration, Prayer is confession, prayer is thanksgiving, and prayer is supplication or petition. We could call these the acts of prayer, A-C-T-S. A is for adoration, C is for confession, T is for thanksgiving, and S is for supplication. It's like the Holy Spirit just puts it right there in the right order so we can remember it that way. It forms a great outline for our believer's prayer. Prayer is all these things. But as Nehemiah prayed in this way, as he prayed the acts of prayer, as it were, he learned that prayer is more than these. When we pray in these, this way, as Nehemiah prayed, we discover that prayer is also the means by which we fit in to what God is doing and what he wants to do. Prayer is the way that God aligns us with him. Prayer is never the way where we go to God and say, God, will you change and will you do this to fit me? <laughs> God would probably go, duh, that's not going to work. <laughs> Prayer is how we stay in step with Jesus. Prayer is that holy rhythm, that holy cadence by which we walk with the Lord. Prayer is how we collaborate with what God is doing here at Grace Baptist Church and what he wants to do through us as Grace Baptist Church and complete union and oneness. 
Prayer is how we stay in step with God. Prayer is how we stay in step with God in our family, in our church, in our community. Prayer is spending time in God's presence, waiting on him until we know what to do. How do we know what to do? When some really busy and effective saint of the Lord was asked, how do you know what to do when there's all this need around you? And she responded, if you pray the work, you will know what to do. And let me qualify that just a little bit. If you pray the work, you will know what God wants you to do. You also may find out what God doesn't want you to do or what you have been doing wrongly. Prayer, therefore, is the best cure for our confusion, the best cure for our perplexity and inability. And as Nehemiah prayed and fasted for days before the God of heaven, his thoughts began to reflect God's thoughts. In Nehemiah's prayer, we can see what God was doing in Nehemiah, but we also see what God was going to do with and through Nehemiah. Now, you probably wonder if we're ever going to get back to Nehemiah. And so turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 5 again. The first chapter of Nehemiah, verse 5. These are the acts of Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah begins with adoration. A is for adoration. Adoration means to adore God, to worship Him, to fulfill the commandment, to love Him with all our heart, mind, and soul. Verse 5 of this first chapter here in Nehemiah's prayer Nehemiah begins with adoration. He said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. First of all, Nehemiah praised God. He adored him for who he is. You are the great and awesome God. And secondly, he praised and adored God for what he did. He preserved the covenant And he preserves loving kindness for those who keep his commandments. Nehemiah worked for the most powerful man on earth, King Artaxerxes. But when Nehemiah prayed, he knew that he was not just coming to another powerful person. Nehemiah was coming to the God of heaven. He was coming to the King of heaven. He was coming to the great and awesome God whom he loved, whom he adored. The word translated awesome comes from the the word that means to be afraid or to be feared. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. It's the same word. When it's used of God, it's it's often translated as awesome. Now in scripture, we have seen this before. Only God and his works are considered awesome. Only God and what he does is awesome. The psalmist declared in relation to prayer in the 65th Psalm, verse 5, By awesome deeds, you, God, answer us in righteousness. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation, you who are the trust for security of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea. Wherever we go to the ends of the earth or the farthest along the sea, you, God, are the awesome God. Now, Nehemiah recounts in his prayer a couple of things by which we could respond. Wow, that's awesome. How awesome are your works? The great and awesome God preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah in his prayer of adoration and praise is putting things in proper perspective here. Nehemiah does not proceed to the other aspects of his prayer until he has reminded himself 
of the greatness and the character of God. And he reminded himself, it's really not up to Nehemiah, and it's not up to King Artaxerxes, really. It's up to the great and awesome God to whom he's directing his prayer. You know, I've discovered that when I go to prayer and feel like my prayer's just bouncing off the ceiling, I really don't sense God's presence. Some of you are kind of going, I feel that way. Others are going, that's kind of odd, Pastor. You're a pastor. You shouldn't have that. <laughs> but I don't sense God's presence. It seems like I'm just mouthing the words or going through the motions. That when I start to praise God, even if I don't feel like it, praising Him for who He is and thanking Him for His goodness, His faithful love that sticks with me through thick and thin, that I don't get very far into praise and adoration before I realize experientially I am in the presence of God's holiness, His awesomeness. The 22nd Psalm says of God, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. God was enthroned in the praises of Nehemiah. The holy God dwells in the praises of his people. The acts of prayer, A is for adoration, C is for confession. It makes sense that after Nehemiah expresses his adoration to God, and that he confesses his sins and the sins of those who have not kept the covenant, including his own sins. There's something about the awesome holiness of God that makes us vividly aware of our own sin. You remember we saw that in Isaiah's case. When Isaiah saw God high and lifted up and the train of his robe was filling the temple and we went holy, holy, holy back and forth. I found it on the pulpit. We did all that kind of stuff to get a feel for that. And the seraphine were crying, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. Well, remember what Isaiah's response in recognizing the presence of the holy God? Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I am a sinner, and I live with a bunch of, of sinners. You see, confession naturally falls on the heels of experiencing the living, holy God whom we serve and love. When we sense the presence of the holy God, we become most aware that we are not holy. So Nehemiah continues his prayer in verse 6. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Now, Nehemiah does something here in his confession that's been modeled by godly servants in Scripture and through the ages. When he confesses the sins of the people, he includes his own sins. We have acted corruptly. I and my father's house have sinned. Nehemiah knew that it was the sins of the Israelites that had caused the judgment of God. It was the sins of Israelites that caused the destruction of Jerusalem, caused the destruction of the house of God, caused the destruction or, or caused the 70 years of exile in, in Babylon, as well as the 70 or so following years of continuing distress and calamity that followed. All of these were the result of the sins of the people of God. 
Turn over to the book of Daniel for a moment. Daniel chapter 9, verse 4. Because we find a very similar, similar prayer of Daniel. When the prophet Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, he says he was reading the words. One day he came and he was reading the words of the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah wrote the captivity of Babylon would last 70 years. And Daniel realized, having experienced those, that total 70 years, that those 70 years were about to be completed. And Daniel prayed the same way as Nehemiah. He praised God and then he confessed his sins and the sins of the people. And we pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 4. This is Daniel's prayer. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenants and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and the people of the land. Here's the thing. If Jerusalem was to be restored, it had to be restored on the basis of the confession of the sins that brought its destruction. And we see the basic principle in confession of sin. Why, why do we confess sin? So that that which the sin broke can be restored. The reason for confession is to restore the sin, what the sin ha has broken. Of course, God is the only one to do that, but he does it through our, our confession. To confess what my part is in the brokenness. The Hebrew word translated confess comes from the, the word that means to throw or to cast. Uh, the root word is yada, which is used even to shoot an arrow, to throw it into the air, to cast it into the air. And depending on the form of the word, it can mean to praise, it can mean to thanks, it can also mean to confess. When we praise God, we are casting our praises to him and we're bringing it up. I like the way that Tony Evans says that in the black church, we're throwing our praises up in God's face. And he doesn't mean in his face as a negative thing, but we're putting it right there before it's in the presence of God, thanking him, acknowledging him. Primarily, it refers to an acknowledgement. Now, the typical acknowledgement that is given to God in Scripture is that of praising God. We throw it to God. We acknowledge his goodness, his faithfulness to all generations. The myriad of things for which we can give God praise are an acknowledgement. But the same word, yadah, dependent on the form, is also a confession of sin. It's confession. Now, confession is an acknowledgement. You remember that uh, when Peter realized who it was that filled his nets with all those fish, he acknowledged before Jesus, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Now, confession doesn't mean you have to beg God for forgiveness, okay? Every sin that you and I have ever committed or ever will commit has been forgiven by God on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, in the New Testament, the word translated confessed literally means to say the same thing. Homo legeo is the word. Homo means the same. Legeo means to speak. Literally, it's to speak the same thing. So it's an acknowledgement. 
Confession means that we acknowledge, we agree with God, we say the same thing that God says about a matter. We agree with God concerning our sin. Uh, turn over to the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John for a little bit, because we see a variety of different confessions in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, beginning with verse 23, if you want to follow through. Chapter 2, verse 23. It says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. We confess the Son of God by saying the same thing about him as the Father says. We acknowledge what God says. We agree with God. That is a confession. We confess him as Lord. Uh, look at chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 2, the fourth chapter, verse 2. Verse 2 of the fourth chapter says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. We acknowledge, we agree with God. We say the same thing as God says about Jesus coming in the flesh. Then verse 3, or yeah, verse 3 of this fourth chapter. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In other words, they don't say the same thing as God. How can it be from God? Uh, go down to verse 15 of this fourth chapter. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. If we agree with God in all of these things, if we confess these, if we acknowledge these, is it too much to ask God to ask us to agree with God concerning our sin? And that's why 1 John adds our own personal sin, our own personal acknowledgement to our confession, our agreeing with God. So go back to the first chapter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 of the first chapter. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... What? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if we put this together, how can I expect to see God work? How can I expect to see God work in my life, in my own situation, see God work in my church and in my community if I don't own up and agree with God that at least in some part, maybe a big part, I'm part of the problem because of my sin. Sure, as a believer, God has forgiven me of every one of my sins. But if I don't own up to it, what does that have to do, what will that do in fixing that which the sin broke? Nothing. You see, every sin breaks something. That's the nature of the thing. The fact doesn't change after you become a Christian. Sin still breaks something. Every sin breaks something. It Sin breaks relationships, it breaks marriages, it breaks fellowships, it can physically break something, it can break bones or something like that. It breaks people, it busts them up, it hurts people. Sin destroys, that's the nature of the thing. Peter, as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 said, sin wages war against our souls. Wages war. I like the way one conservative talk show host put it, and he's exactly right. What is the purpose of war? The purpose of war is to kill people and break things. 
That's what war is. That's its purpose. That's what sin does, is it wages war. Sin cannot destroy your position in Christ, that you are a child of God. But sin can certainly destroy your walk with Christ. It damages your fellowship with Christ. It breaks your fellowship with other Christians. Now, disagreeing with God about the matter, which is the opposite of confession, won't fix a relationship. It won't fix whatever the consequences of the sin might happen to be. We can usually think of six or 12 or 14,000 ways that somebody has manifested an unwillingness to change, but seldom do we consider what's my part in the problem. We like to lay the cause of the problem completely at somebody else's doorstep. And what we've done right there, that's sin. <laughs> that's sin. See, it works both ways. As you go before the Lord in prayer concerning anything that is unresolved, can be personality conflicts, relationships, circumstances, whatever the rubble might be in somebody's home or in the church, we need to have the attitude that's reflected in these following words. Lord, I bring thee before you these areas where I have caused an irritation or I have sinned or I have done wrong. This is the realm of my responsibility. I can't change that other person. But God, I can tell you this is my part in it. Thank you for your faithfulness, God, that you cleanse me from even this unrighteousness. You see, Nehemiah could not be used of God to restore the brokenness nor would he see the brokenness restored unless he acknowledged his sin in the matter. Until he was broken over his own sin, God would not use Nehemiah to restore the brokenness of Jerusalem. The acts of prayer, adoration, confession, tea, thanksgiving. Now, Nehemiah's thanksgiving takes the form of recounting the promises of God, that he is faithful and, and righteous and and uh, does what he, he promises. We see it beginning in verse 8 of Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 8, he says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered we're in the most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. Notice that the promise of God has two parts. First of all, if Israel disobeyed, they would be scattered. That came to pass. We like to think of the promises of God only in the positive. A lot of his promises are, are very negative. They're warnings of judgment. If you are unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you among the peoples of the earth. I promise, says God, and God kept his promise. We can thank him for that. But his promises are positive as well. So secondly, when the time of captivity ended, God would bring them back to Jerusalem and protect them. And that part remained unfulfilled at this point. So that brings us to Nehemiah's petition. S is for supplication or petition, that which we ask God for. Verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Nehemiah brought his petition before the Lord. 
having acknowledged God's awesome greatness, who he is and his awesome works, having confessed his own sin, reviewed God's promises and how God keeps those promises and thank him for him, now he lays his petition before God. And Nehemiah just gives us a summary here of four months worth of prayer here. But now we can trace how God worked in Nehemiah's life to show Nehemiah where he personally fit in. Having moved into that holy rhythm and getting into step with God, listening, praying, waiting on God, crying, beseeching God, knocking on his door, asking of God, God reveals some pretty key things to Nehemiah. Notice that Nehemiah prayed, grant me compassion before this man. Me, personal Nehemiah, before this man. The king was Artaxerxes, the emperor of the known world, whom Nehemiah introduces in the next chapter. And so through the acts of prayer, God revealed to Nehemiah that the king was going to be key to God's plan. And that he had already been developing that plan and that God is the key to changing the king's heart. Can you really get people to change, to change their minds, their hearts, their actions, or their reactions? Can we really change anybody? Dale Carnegie, several years ago, wrote that uh, famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I always like to say, How to Win Friends and Influential People. But much of his book, about a sixth of his book, talks about nine ways to change people without giving offense or causing resentment. Really? <laughs> can we really change people or can we only manipulate them into trying to get them to be who we want them to be? Because Carnegie, in a best-selling book that still sells millions of copies, left out the only way, the only valid way that people are really changed. He can't change them. And if he could, he would just make them into what he wanted them to be and they, he would learn to regret that. They would resent him. There's only one way to change people, only one way, and that's to take them to the throne of grace in prayer, to take them to prayer. Proverbs 21.1, and we've quoted this a couple of times in recent weeks, the heart's king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, knew the secret. It's called Hudson Taylor's secret. What was that secret? Taylor rightly stated, it is possible to move men through prayer to God alone. It is possible to move men through prayer to God alone. So first of all, God began to reveal to Nehemiah that the key, the king was the key to God's plan. And secondly, God began to reveal to Nehemiah that Nehemiah would have a personal role in meeting this humongous need. And that is what praying in our prayers accomplishes. O oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant, me, me says Nehemiah, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. And then he left it with God. Nehemiah was unable to meet the need himself. He knew that prayer was primary, but it wasn't theoretical prayer. As Nehemiah prayed, he began to sense that God might involve 
him. He ends his prayer, make your servant, make me successful today and grant me compassion before the king Artaxerxes. You see, Nehemiah made himself available to meet the need, if that is what God desired. Prayer that gets the job done is prayer that, conclude, that includes the conviction, Lord, I'm available. Lord, use me, if that is what you want. We'll see the answer to Nehemiah's prayer next week. Shall we pray? Father, as we come before you and as we study and continue our study of Nehemiah and give thought to, to what you are showing us in your word, Lord, I pray that you'd open up each one of our hearts, each one of our minds, because to you, the things of you, Lord, because as we watch the news and uh, with modern technology, we get blasted at any point we want to go online or watch the news or check our cell phone, our smartphone, Lord, with needs that are just overwhelming. And we think, what is this world coming to, Lord? Father, I pray, first of all, as we have prayed, that uh, you would break our hearts over the right things, Lord. And as we would come before you, humble and contrite in heart, Lord, that you would begin to reveal to each one of us what you are going to do. The awesome and great things that you have not done yet, but you are going to do, Father. And we pray, Lord, that we would not only see them, but we would be used of you like Nehemiah is, was, Lord. Because we want to see your great and awesome deeds. We want that with all our heart, Lord. And they need to be manifested in our, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, in our country, and in our world. Fathers, we look at what's going on in this election year. We can just see what happens when people decide to leave you out of it. So what do we expect? What do we expect, Father? We expect and anticipate that you would use each one of us in some measure to fulfill your kingdom promises among us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.